Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I, I feel like where I'm living is currently under occupation by Klingon forces, so I'm going to be very quiet unless I create any sedition over here. Well, that, that is contemporary America, so I think it's very understandable that you have those feelings. But uh, before we get too deep into politics, let's just stick with the Klingons for the time being and admit that this week we have to cover Errand of Mercy. As always, we're not doing it alone, so say hello, Alistair. Hello, and I was I was not informed that we would be getting into politics here. I thought we were going to talk about Star Trek, um, which famously has no politics in it. Uh, and this episode has some of the least politics of anything I've ever seen. So uh, I don't know how I feel about that. But yes, hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Excited to be here on this, uh, I say new venture, new to me. Uh, I know this has been going for some time now, which is very exciting. But uh, yeah, here to, here to talk about Errand of Mercy. I'm excited. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Uh, it's also lovely. You know, we, we, we know each other from, from previous podcasts, from, from our, our lives as uh, Doctor Who podcasters, uh, both yourselves and, and Kevin and myself. So it's, it's lovely to have the opportunity to chat again. But as we always do at the top of the show, we like to ask our guests what their history with Star Trek is. So, um, Alistair, what's, what's your history with the show? How did you come to it? And, and, and what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, in, a, in the most sort of perverse way, uh, Star Trek to me started out not as television, but as movies. Um, I watched the original series movies was, I think, the way that I first got into it. I, I don't remember exactly. I, I want to say it was Star Trek four that I saw first, um, which is the one with the humpback whales and time travel. It's the comedy one. It is. It's perfect. It's I love that movie. Um, it's certainly, if it's not the very first one I saw, there's a real chance that I'm, because I am the sort of person who always wants to start at the beginning, I, I may well have watched Star Trek, the motion picture first, which, um, I, I'm, I'm aware that it's director's cut is considered to be an improvement, but it's definitely not the best foot forward for one trying to get into Star Trek. So I, whatever way was technically the first one, uh, I think that Star Trek four was very much the one that made me think, oh, this is something that I am. I love, I don't understand a lot of it, but I, I'm very excited about it. Um, and I and I think that it was like, yeah, though Star Trek four, I saw the rest of the movies, the original series movies. I saw the, the next generation movies. I saw Nemesis in theaters for my sins. Um, and I came to the TV shows relatively late in that process. Um, I mean, the big one for me is Deep Space Nine. I think Deep Space Nine is the greatest television show ever made. I, I genuinely would go that far. I absolutely love Deep Space Nine. I remember watching it, I think it was back in, I want to say 2012, when I was in a sort of weird in-between job situation. And I remember binge watching seven seasons. And these are some beefy seven seasons, 26 episodes in all but the, uh, I think it's a 20 episode first season and then all the rest are 26. Uh, and watching that in approximately like three weeks or something absolutely ridiculous Ooh. how fast I got through wow. that. Um, so uh, that is that is that's my wavelength. Um, I've seen a decent um, sample of Next Generation, probably somewhere in the vicinity of maybe forty percent of the episode. Maybe not that high, but I've seen all the, the all the really most of all the really big ones. I, I do. 
have a great fondness for next generation, but I'm definitely more of a DS9 uh, person. Um, seen uh, some of uh, bits and bobs of Voyager, not a huge amount. Um, it's not really for me. I have watched all of Enterprise, uh, which I actually wrote a uh, what was it a TV Club Ten article for uh, for the AV Club of old, uh, and I have a pretty big soft spot for Enterprise. I, I think that there's uh, a lot to recommend it. Uh, of the new stuff, um, I really tried with Discovery. I I had to give up at a certain point. Uh, it just is not for me. Um, I, I got to the part where they they skip forward in time. I, I got so I guess it's the first episode of season three, and I was just like, oh, I just don't. I I'm not saying it's never going to get better, but I don't think it's ever going to get more for me. So I just failed at that point. Uh, but it didn't get I, better. Yeah, I I. Well, I, I'm, I will, I will take your word for it. Uh, and, uh, but do really, really like uh, Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds, and yes. excited for the return of the latter, which will feature a crossover with the former this coming season. So I am, uh, so I, that's that's my overall uh, experience with Trek. So a decent cross section of the entire franchise. The one thing I really haven't actually mentioned, I'm realizing now is the original series itself. I've seen relatively little of that. And it always feels really weird when I go back and watch it, given that the movies, which are a more do definitely have a more modern sensibility than the very 60s original series. Uh, it always feels a little odd to see everyone at their youngest. Um, so, yeah, I've seen, again, I would say bits and bobs of the original series, but had not seen Errand of Mercy before watching it for this. And I'm uh, excited to, to to get into that. So, yeah, that's my that's my Trek uh, experience. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you very much. That, that sounds like there's going to be uh, plenty to get stuck in with there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you have designated yourself as a Klingon correspondent of here. You've specifically that's picked... Right. Not just this episode, but the next two seasons worth of episodes of guest appearances for Klingons that show up in Deep Space Nine again. <laughs> so that's right. That's uh, right. I, this is uh, the Blood Oath trilogy is what I'm putting together. So those those who know will know what I'll be talking about uh, in the fullness of time. So that's exciting. Yeah. So happy to have you in that role. Um, yeah, I believe JG. This is when you normally ask me to provide a summary, but since I'm the one talking right now, I'll prompt myself. <laughs> um, Aaron. <laughs> Errand of Mercy uh, has the uh, newly minted as of a few episodes ago Federation going up against the newly minted as of this episode Klingon Empire. Uh, they are squabbling over a planet called Organia as peace negotiations are breaking down. Um, the, the USS Enterprise blows up a Klingon ship. They go down to the planet to see what's up, but then the Klingons start occupying the planet and the Enterprise is forced to fly away, leaving Kirk and Spock stranded. Uh, they are under Klingon rule, but then try to teach the peaceful Organians on how to rebel with violence rather than ineffective pacifism. Uh, the Klingons, led by Commander Kor, wind up resisting Kirk and Spock and capturing them, and they escape. And they go back and forth like this a while until... In the middle of a showdown, the Organians reveal that they are uh, extra-dimensional beings that can actually use massive power to stop this conflict on this planet, both Enterprise and Klingon fleet, and force them to come to at least a tentative peace accord and fly off and separate with each other, and the planet will not be invaded by either uh, government. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Alistair, you're both our guest and our Klingon correspondent. So um, over to you for our initial report, I think. 
Yeah, I think that this is one that for Aaron to Mercy, I think that you it is. I think as we were sort of in our little pre-production meeting, the way I described it was, I think that Errand of Mercy is more important than it's good. Um, And I don't think it's a bad episode, but I I definitely think that this is one that, to my mind, the highlight of it on a number of levels uh, is, I would say the Klingons, but I think really the Klingon. uh, It is core, I think, is the major highlight of this episode, the thing that is worth remembering about it, John Kalikos's uh, performance is, it's one of those things where this is the first time they're here. Like this, it, the, and he, his choices here are going to inform a half century plus's worth of performances as Klingons, which, and I think that while there are certainly uh, things you wouldn't do now, uh, the makeup mm-hmm. is the big one. Um, yeah. You, there are, I think that it is still, it is reflective of a sort of general approach that he's taking with it. He specifically was going for a Genghis Khan-like uh, approach. Uh, and I think that that idea of the sort of, yeah, that noble warrior race uh, is... It instantly feels like, yes, this is a Klingon. It makes sense. This is, it's not like they're going to have to revise the character. Like, there is a line that you can draw from him to any of the other iconic Klingons that are going to come after. And you certainly, I certainly come away with it understanding why they they felt that they had something that was worth uh, coming back to. And, and indeed, why they wanted to keep bringing him back, though that didn't work out uh, in the original series. Uh, and they, they got some other very talented actors as well to play Klingons in, in subsequent episodes. But um, yeah, I, so I think that like that's the big highlight of this. Uh, I, I do think that the, the the politics of it are definitely have to be dug into, uh, and I think are I think that's the other thing to my mind that really stands out about this episode. Uh, the Organians are sort of I think they're almost purposefully very dull, uh, and in a way that doesn't doesn't really. I don't think it detracts horribly, but I also don't think it adds a ton to the episode. I, I, I just don't have great feelings about them one way or the other. Maybe I'll develop feelings as, as you both talk and I, and I get to see them through a different light. But uh, I think they're fine. Mostly, I think they're functional. Um, but yeah, I, I think that Errand of Mercy, it, it feels like there's a sort of functional core, but that it is accentuated by uh, a couple really strong, interesting performances and ideas. Uh, so that is, that's my general appraisal of Errand of Mercy. Excellent. Good stuff. Um, Kev, how did you find it this time out? I, yeah, I also enjoyed it overall. I think where I'm going to get pros and cons will come from more of our the political discussion of the episode and the Organians themselves. I do think I want to start with the Klingons, though, since that's like the big event. These are This is our first Klingon episode. We are introduced to them and everything and um mentioned earlier but the elephant in the room that has to be addressed and i think we just address it early and then move on uh the makeup is horrendous it is face darkening the i mean they're going for an quote unquote oriental look as stated in behind the scenes materials and that's a bad idea executed badly <laughs> the the facial hair is all bad it just really sets you on edge the only saving grace is uh, the performance by John Kolikos, who doesn't uh, draw on any Earth, nation, or race in the performance of the character, in the characterization, which is good. He really does, I feel like, set his own path. This this isn't like, 
you, you know what I'm thinking. This isn't, it's not minstrelly. It's not um, exotic. It really does feel like an original idea of a warrior-based society that isn't drawing too far on an Earth parallel. So you're not uncomfortable by otherings of actual people. Uh, and I think that's the one thing that saves it from a visual job that is very uncomfortable. But this yes, is with... uh, this is not a full blown talons of Wang Chiang situation exactly. to, to cross our streams for for a second here. Um, it, it's one of those things that I've certainly seen. I saw some arguments as I was looking at the research that, like, in the context of its day, this was you know this could have been a lot worse. You know, yeah. and, and 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 like I really. I don't care to go down that line one way or the other, oh. but yeah, it's, I, I definitely, I think it could have been a lot worse. That is probably true, yeah. but it also could have been better. As you say, it's just one of those things that, you know, you wouldn't do it this way now. And that's, that's kind of, and I, and I wish they hadn't done it quite like that then, but it is what it is. So yeah, yeah as, think, as you say. I think it's where we can leave the conversation as well. Cause like there's, I don't think there's nothing more to be said about that Absolutely. because as stated, the character winds up being so distinct and not falling into the tropes that you're afraid it might on first glance. And that character is so distinct. I love Korra in this episode. I think Koluko's performance is incredible. Like, the the whole thrust of this episode is you need someone to be on Shatner's playing field. Like, this is someone he's going to have philosophical debates with, physical debates with. <laughs> he is going toe-to-toe with him. And so you need an actor who can, like, bring that Shatnerian gravitas to every line, the over-emotion, the big, everything I'm saying is so important energy. And Kolikos can match that. And that is kind of incredible because this is a very pro-Shatner podcast. Um, like, obviously we've had quibbles here and there, but I think overall this is also a good Shatner episode in general. And I think Kolikos does a great job having to match that like intimidating energy to give him a worthy foe, which is impressive like that's no small feat well it's that thing that shatner does a lot which is when he's faced with an actor who's at least as good as he is he suddenly ups his game and i think you can see shatner doing that i mean i obviously i'm not going to disagree about the quality of uh, colicus's performance here i i love him as an actor i adore watching him even in something as kind of not good as the original battlestar galactica he's like he's incredibly magnetic as as baltar and he's great here as Kor. One tiny little addition to the kind of the the, the unfortunate racial uh, undertones of this is that the thing, the other thing that saves it is that he doesn't try and do an accent. He just speaks with his voice. And that mm. is a real mercy. Again, sort of dodging the sort of talents on Wang Chang comparison. Um, but the fact that he just speaks in his own voice and gets on with it just makes such a difference. He is an amazing presence throughout this episode. But the way that he forces Shatner to up his game is one of the great kind of utilities that he has. And we'll see this, we've seen it before, and we'll see it time and time again as we go through Star Trek, where Shatner has somebody he thinks he can dominate, he tends to go too far, and we lapse into that kind of Shatnerian sort of cliche. But when he's got somebody that really puts him in his game, somebody like a Mark Leonard, for example, suddenly he's on point and you can see it in this episode that scene where it's just the two of them where um core offers him a drink before the execution and and it's just these two captains talking to each other and core has genuine respect for him but kirk can't quite manage to like play along with it his contempt just comes through it's such a good scene for shatner it's great for colicus as well of course it is but it's such a great scene 
for Shatner and watching him sort of improve his performance against the way that Colicos is playing it is just one of the pleasures of this episode. He's great in this. Oh, yeah. It's just an incredible performance and elevates both characters so well. Like, I mean, you can already tell Shatner's in the pocket before Cora shows up. I love him talking to the Organians and it feel he feels like almost verging into parody when he's like, you must resist the Klingons. And it, it's like just at the table before the Klingons even shown up. But at the same time, it's kind of what you're here for. And he does, like you just gives you that energy that the show needs to prevent becoming too intellectual heady or whatever. He needs that sort of raw Shatner energy. So, and then, like I said, Cora shows up and he goes to a whole nother level. It's yeah. It's just really great stuff. It's one of those things where it, it's probably it's not fair, uh, although it, it's to Aaron of Mercy's benefit that I that I have this association. But it is like Kirk's hatred of the Klingons is something that is very consistently carried through for his decades in the role, uh, and it gets only further uh, accentuated by the events of the movies, where he he his his son dies at the hands of not just a Klingon, but a Klingon played by Christopher Lloyd, uh, assisted by a Klingon played by John Larroquette. I love Star Trek three, uh, but um, I I think that, and, and I just that that sort of seething contempt for the Klingons is, I think, unique in terms of Kirk's. Like, I don't think any other race or or group sets him off in quite the same way, and it's and it is, and here it's it's not as motivated because he hasn't had that that personal stake. There is. Um, I think context that gets added uh, subsequently that that might help explain this, but yeah, I think that. But the thing is, is like I don't need it to be explained. I don't need it to be rooted in anything because, as you say, like this is Shatner just so fully commits to it, and, and indeed, it only. I think the fact that it isn't necessarily clearly motivated, it is just the way that he feels, and he can't even necessarily he cannot control his emotions about this. Uh, actually, plays off very well. Uh, not just with obviously, of course, Spock, who who is always a great counterpoint to a very emotional performance, but the Organians and how, again, purposefully dull they are about it all, and that they just give him nothing, and and it makes, and I think that Shatner actually I think has a lot of fun just continuing to ratchet up how over emotional he is as the Organians continue to just be completely deadpan in response. I love that line uh, when he you know he he yells at them after they said that you know their way of life is is peaceful and he says that's the first thing that would be lost and then he says i'm a soldier not a diplomat i can only tell you the truth and star trek i think in general definitely plays fast and loose with to what degree starfleet is a military organization and i think that that's to some degree intentional uh that it is a little muddied but there you really do believe that starfleet is the military and that kirk is a military man and that he is really struggling being put in a situation that he is not well suited for uh, and, and is increasingly just wants to browbeat them into to doing what they, what needs to be done. Um, yeah. I, I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Well, I think this is probably where we tip into the, the, the political part of the episode because the idea that both Kirk and Kor are soldiers in a very traditional mm. sense is kind of a setup that we haven't, quite seen in Star Trek up to this point. We've had the Romulans and and that's been clear enough in, in Balance of Terror. But this, apart, partly what you say, Alistair, the fact that this feels more personal, it feels much more grudge-filled. 
Um, and also the idea that Organia is basically just space Vietnam with the communists on one side and the Americans on the other. Except instead of, you know, peaceful villagers being bombed into the middle of nowhere, we have, you know, strange alien beings who aren't going to get bombed anywhere, whether they like it or not. Um, but that it does that idea of Kirk as being this soldier and having a line like, I'm not a diplomat. That's that's a little I don't want to say it's out of character for what we've had of Kirk so far, but it's certainly pushing the character in a direction that is more extreme in that way than we've had before you know we've seen him be diplomatic now sometimes that diplomacy has been sort of gumboat diplomacy and something like say a taste of armageddon but we haven't seen him be just straightforwardly described as a soldier and there is a real sense here especially when the two fleets are kind of facing off against each other and when the enterprise has to make like make a run for it and leave kirk and spock behind it's being played in a really kind of naval sort of way. It, 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 this is a naval battle. Like it's one ship at harbor that has to flee when the Klingon fleet turns up. It has to go and, you know, like get the other ships from like the South Pacific to come back to Vietnam, space of Vietnam, uh, in, in order to have, you know, their conflict. And that, that sense of the, the militarism and Kirk being so specifically a soldier that's a little bit of a new crinkle to the character that we've not quite had before Shatner plays it really well but he I think it's also important to note that for whilst we do have that kind of the whole thing about him arguing well you know we have the right to wage war if we want who are you telling us sort of not to he, he doesn't quite goes far over the top as you fear he might at one point he does I like the whole thing when he kind of realizes what it is he's arguing in favor of um and then you know Kirk looks kind of rueful and, and, and sort of slightly ashamed for it is again, really nicely played by Shatner, but it's, it's just fascinating to see the character of Kirk pushed so far into something so explicitly military when we've generally tended to shade away from that kind of very black and white description of him. Well, and I think that, you know, you mentioned uh, balance of terror, which I haven't seen in a while, but I have relatively recently seen quality of mercy, the strange new worlds episode. So I basically uh, have seen it recently. Uh, but uh, like, I think that if there's sort of the one note almost, or the one, I don't know whether you say improvement, but certainly like the one way to make it even more visceral is they take the one character who's the episode of the week character who's bigoted against the Romulans. And then you just say, well, what if that's just Kirk? Like, what if you just take that character and you transpose those prejudices and those struggles uh, and those fears and those mistakes? And instead of insulating Kirk and the rest of the main cast from that, you just say, yeah, we're going to locate that squarely, uh, squarely within him. Um, so it's, it's sort of the one way, and I think the balance of terror, uh, I was about to say on balance, but that seems repetitive, uh, overall is a better, uh, is a significantly better episode than, oh. than Aaron Mercy. I oh, don't yeah. think it's very close. Yeah. But, uh, I do think like that is, that's a, that's a clever tweak. Uh, if you're sort of putting those two episodes in conversation with one another and saying, well, what is it that, how can we progress what we saw in balance of terror? And instead of it, it being, because I think also like Balance of Terror is so much like it's the World War II submarine story, right? Like it is, it is the, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel rooted in the present moment in the way that Errand of Mercy does. Like, like Balance of Terror is a great, great war story and it's a great story about prejudice. But this is truly, a, as you say, it's space Vietnam. It is that difference between making something that is 
talking about some talking about issues that are timeless or are you know in people's memories of very living memories versus something that is truly commenting on something that was happening right then and there at that time that it was made right and vietnam is what you both keep bringing up but what i kept thinking about during this episode is the other major uh societal push of the 60s the civil rights movement and this the idea of the peaceful organians point of view versus Kirk and Spock's need for direct action. Uh, I mean, it's almost a direct parallel to, uh, like, the classic idea of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X sort of being on these opposing forces. Now, I think it's come to light recently that those two figures are much more friendly with each other and similar to each other than a lot of white historians would let us believe. But the idea at the time, whereas, like, one person is advocating for um, negotiation and a more peaceful settlement of things, and one side wants a more violent, direct way of resolving this through, they can only hear us if we do potentially terrible things, is such a idea at the time. Like, it's so relevant to 1967. And I just found that so fascinating that Star Trek for most of the episodes of this running time was taking the side of direct action, direct violence. Uh, we need to have our voices be heard and we need to do action. We can't just sit on our thumbs and negotiate a way out of this, which I feel like is almost the perception of people who don't care for Trek as much think that it is the Organian point of view, that it is more of a, well, we can all, we're all rational-minded people. We can sit at the table and discuss this out. But so yeah, it's just it's just fascinating to me that Kirk and Spock are the ones who are very much pro uh, blowing up the Klingon base and uh, directly like escaping prison and fighting them and punching them left and right. It's a very militaristic view of things, but also a very like leftist view of things. Dare I say, it's it's not a simple thorny issue that makes it. All the more frustrating that the episode resolves in a very simple, simplistic way that's kind of counter to that. But we can get to that later. But I'm curious what your thoughts about Kirk and Spock as saboteurs. I think it's an interesting approach, let's say, because um, one of the things which is incredibly obvious about Star Trek, and we're almost a third of the way through the original series' run now, is that its politics are pretty inconsistent. Uh, we can mm-hmm. be, you know, peacenik loving, you know, peace advocating members of a, a hippie community one week, and we can be warmongering, arguing for the rights to kill because it's our right to be able to do so next. I think that is one of the reasons that the original series is really fascinating. There is so much going on during this period of time. And Kev, you're quite right to kind of like bring up like the, the Peace Corps and, and all that kind of stuff as well, because that definitely feels like it's an influence on this episode. Um, but it's it's that way that, you know, obviously anything which has, uh, you know, so many different creative people um, working on it, particularly in sort of 1960s television, isn't necessarily going to have a consistent point of view. But at the same time, it kind of also gives that lie to the idea that, you know, like Gene Roddenberry had this grand master plan and this, uh, you know, society all worked out and blah, blah, blah. It's clearly not the case. One of the things which will be um, definitely an influence on an episode like this is the fact, and I know we've mentioned this in the podcast before, but it bears repeating, is that many of these uh, people involved in the show saw service 
during World War Two. So the idea of like you know the the, the like the infiltrators, the the uh, terrorist side, where Kirk and Spock want to tie them up and uh, you know destroy their communications and their supply lines or whatever. Uh, on the one hand, you can look at it as kind of like the revolutionary left kind of taking direct action, but it's also precisely what would have happened to like um, the Nazis. They would have been attacked in that way in, in occupied mm. France or. Or whatever. So you know that kind of thing is is also going to have a bearing. And so the idea that this kind of very direct action, this kind of militaristic approach to the problem that they're faced with, you know, it it, it may well be something that the people involved in the show have actually done, rather than it being this kind of abstract moral or philosophical point of view that informs the way that the episode comes across. Eventually, the episode kind of comes right and admits, oh yeah, actually, maybe we shouldn't be advocating for the right to be able to slaughter millions and, and destroy populations on a planetary scale or whatever. Um, but, you know, that that kind of philosophical and political contradiction that, that often comes up during the original show, I think really is one of the things that makes it such a fascinating piece of kind of cultural history. Yeah. I just, on that, uh, I looked up Gene L. Kuhn, the writer of this episode, and a significant Star Trek writer. I believe someone called him showrunner of the original series when Roddenberry was let, became less involved, but I, I can fact, fact check that in a later episode. But yes, he did serve in World War II directly as a Marine, 42 to 46. So... Yeah. And sometimes with the ages, especially with the actors, they can be a little later. But I do find it interesting that the writer of this episode definitely directly served for multiple years in the war. Well, I think that this I think this speaks to what is maybe a little bit lost in, I guess, temporal translation with Errand of Mercy um, is, is just the fact that I think it's doing things that for its time were revolutionary or, or very unusual uh, to be seen on TV. And now we don't necessarily even blink at, at those sorts of things. Um, and I think that, um, again, to, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep cashing in my, I'm going to reference Doctor Who occasionally card here. Uh, but like, you know, I don't know, I, I kind of keep think back to, um, you know, the, the Daleks and, and like that being Terry Nation's way of sort of working through his own wartime experiences and how that really wasn't something that was very often like directly engaged with, you know, like that was in 1963, a very unusual thing to do. And we're only a few years later than that. And I think that it is that sort of thing where, I don't know, you always, you always want to be a little careful with this. Cause I don't want to, you know, there Look, this is an era, as you're alluding to, where like writers had tended to have more life experiences than just being TV writers, I guess, is the sort of general point. Like, as you say, a lot of them right. would have served in, in the military. And uh, that is its own uh, complex thing, even if World War II is, is you know, if, if there was a time to serve in the military, that was the time to serve in the military uh, <laughs> on the Allied side. Uh, but um, like it, it is in terms of like there actually being a justification for doing so. I mean, not, not that that was a, a fun time at all, but yeah, I, I think that, and, and I think that that's the other thing, you know, the Klingons that like the idea of portraying the enemy, particularly an enemy that is so coded as uh, the East again, in ways that are not always, always good, but in ways that are very specifically meant to evoke the Soviet union, uh, communist China, whatever, uh, like, and to do so in a way that is humanizing and uh, portraying them as equals, portraying them as not inherently evil, um, as as you know, as two of a kind, essentially. Like, I mean, I'm liter I was literally kind of waiting for Core to 
uh, talk about in alternate realities. And, you know, we might have been, I was like, oh, no, that's the other, that, that's the other ones. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it is that sort of thing now where we take for granted that that sort of nuance is possible uh, or that we can comment so directly on things that are happening right now or in the very recent past. And I think there's a lot about Errand of Mercy that was daring or provocative in 1957 that it's just, it's hard to even see that in 2023. Um, and, and and I do think that that's something to its credit and, and, and worth, uh, uh, worth, worth highlighting that I think it was doing things that you wouldn't see terribly often, um, particularly again, when it is so, it's tiptoeing so close up to the line of really directly commenting on things that were happening. As you mentioned with, um, yeah, all the different issues that were very much in the ether in 1967. It's such a bold move of the episode at the end with the Organians saying that the Federation and the Klingon Empire will make peace and be friends and allies one day. Like, especially if they are, the Klingons are the Soviets, which is not a big leap to make. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like, it's such an, it's a real bolt of optimism to be that. And then it just, again, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that in 20 some odd years, the next, the literal next generation of writers will make that a reality. And I guess that speaks to this was made during the Cold War. Next generation was made as it was winding down. And yet the fact that those peace efforts were made in the Star Trek canon and so that prophecy came true, it just, it speaks to that radical nature of it. That the idea that we're not, we can move beyond a warlike society, which, I mean, we I kind of have, there are active wars in this planet right now. I know that for a fact, but you, we don't have world wars as much anymore. There's not a major cold war hanging over heads at all time. Um, there's squabbles in nations, but it is such a, I feel like for the sixties, that idea that there will be a point where humans aren't actively fighting wars all the time, but instead making peace with their allies and growing and learning from them is such a radical idea like you said, it is, feels like, and so far removed from 20 years earlier when we were in World War II. It's, mm-hmm. I love that. And I think it's significant that both this and Balance of Terror, the two episodes that introduced the major recurring antagonists in Star Trek, who would eventually no longer be antagonists, uh, Romulans and Klingons, both of them go through gr- such great efforts to humanize their enemy, even if they don't have sympathy for Kor or for the Romulan leader in Balance of Terror. Uh, they're definitely humanized. Uh, Apologies for the phrase human, I guess, but you get what I mean. These are characters with depth and interesting characterizations and sympathies. And even if Kor is ultimately still a bully and a tyrant, you understand his point of view in a way you wouldn't with uh, a Gorn, let's say. Absolutely. And I, I think that this is where, again you see where they, they hit upon the the aspects of the Klingon character that would carry through. Um, and that I think that what's great about it is that the episode does go to some lengths to portray Kor in a way that is not, it is not just he's a human, uh, you know, with unfortunate makeup. I'll, I'll try to stop harping on that. Um, but uh, it is like, he, he genuinely does have a different outlook than Kirk, even at his most bellicose. And this at times is Kirk at his most bellicose. Uh, You know, when he's talking about how it would be better to, uh, you know, be out in battle than, you know, being the military governor of a planet of sheep, Uh, you know, and I I love the the line that to my mind, it's 
close to his final. Oh, yeah, it is his final line when at the end, uh, you know, Kirk says, obviously, the Organians aren't going to let us fight. And Kor's response is so beautiful. And that, to my mind, is it is it is like it, the Klingons are absolutely, if they haven't already, completely defined in Kor's response when he says, a shame, Captain, it would have been glorious. And I love that line. And I just and I love the delivery of it. And I, I think a thing that I want to just quickly underscore about the Klingons is what I love about them is, you know, the the Klingon of Star Trek is, of course, Mr. Worf. Uh, but what's always so fascinating to my mind about Mr. Worf is, uh, about Worf, is that he is a very unusual Klingon in that he was raised by humans. And so his knowledge of Klingon society is all from a distance. And so he's, he's such a sort of, he's such a nerd about Klingon society. He's so humorless about it. And the thing that he misses about the Klingons, especially the more aristocratic ones, and Kor is certainly a Klingon aristocrat, is they have a lot of fun being Klingons. Like, like to be a Klingon is to is to have a blast being a Klingon. And that, to my mind, is core defined. And that's something that really carries over into his DS9 appearances as well. And that it, it isn't just about being, you know, constantly looking to, to you know, find the deadliest possible mission to, to you know, become among the honored dead in Stovacor. It is to have as much fun as humanly possible uh, you know, partying and killing your way to that eventual fate as as possible. And so, uh, yeah, Kor definitely feels like he embodies that ethos of perhaps today is a good day to die, but but first, it's a good day to live, baby. So yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know, I just love how the Klingons in the in the form of Kor come across uh, in this episode. And I want to get a little bit more, a little more Kor love into this podcast because it is deserved. Oh, yeah. The other great line he has this episode is talking about, and today we are conquering, if we're defeated, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but if we are defeated in the future, well, war has its few fortunes, good and bad. I mangled the delivery there because he gives it such a great Shakespearean spin. But Mm. yeah, the idea that I just am here for the conflict, the conflict is all that matters. And if I fail, that's, that's how it goes. It's just such a interesting perspective that defines, like you said, the next 50 years of this culturally significant um alien idea yeah i think what i would say is because i'm now remembering what my original point was before i just kind of got lost in in loving john kalikos and his and his work here is just the klingons again in the in the form of core because the rest of the klingons are, are they're, they're not klingons yet for god's sake one of them would rather you know give information up to kirk than than, than die that's not klingon uh but like it is the the klingon worldview is alien but comprehensible. And I think that like, that is a very smart way of approaching it. And, and while I certainly would not suggest that uh, that should be taken as, oh, that, that's a way of understanding, you know, the, 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 the Soviet worldview or whatever, I do think that's a very, very fair way to kind of approach a sci-fi equivalent of that, especially in the context of 1967. Um, and I think, again, speaks to why the Klingons proved to be such an enduring uh, adversary and then uh, ally of varying degrees of uneasiness uh, over the over the course of the franchise. Which is just as well, in a way, because all this praise, I mean, obviously, I agree with it all. And, mm. and I'm, I'm not going to contradict anything else, which is which has been said thus far. Um, but it's all trapped in an episode which really struggles to get out of second gear. Um, yeah, and that is a bit of a shame. It's like I, I actually really like the performance of the Organians here. I like just how 
kind of dismissive they are of these squabbling, petty little children that are just kind of running around at the, you know, the, the, the hem of their, their robes. Um, I think I think John Abbott gives a lovely kind of distracted yes. and kind of distant performance as Alborn. I really, really like that. And I love the way that, like, when the Klingons finally turn up and he says, oh, all right, sure, we'll, we'll follow you you know if it makes you feel better it's you know it's just it's it's so close to the line of being patronizing towards the klingons but it never quite tips over into that it's just like ah uh, okay yeah i'm fine that's 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 what you want um and but the way that he's being he's so even-handed with the way that he treats kirk the same you know like nobody's in danger here you don't have to worry about anything it's fine it's a lovely kind of underplayed performance there are a few performances in this episode which are pretty ropey, mostly the, the other Klingons that aren't um, that aren't core. Uh, but I really love like John Abbott's performance here as Alibur. I think he's really doing his best to invest something into this character because on paper there's not a lot there. They sit at a table, right. they pontificate for a bit, and then they just stop things at the end of the episode. That's pretty much all the Organians do. They're they're not that much of a presence but they're at least with the sense of the the, the, that slightly distracted approach that john abbott takes to it there is that sense that there is there is still waters run deep is is too that's that's too much credit but that there is something at least going on under, under the surface there is that implication that he's so uninterested in the idea that the klingons have turned up or that the enterprise has turned up or that 200 people have allegedly been executed in the square or whatever. Like he's just so couldn't, it just doesn't matter. And eventually that, that kind of that lack of interest almost becomes sort of fascinating in itself because there must be something else. And that's exactly what Kirk ends up sort of kicking against. Like he doesn't, he can't get it. And, and the eventual reveal, it's not, great <laughs> you know it's not the strongest moment yeah. we've had enough beings who can knock our crew about for whatever reason the plot requires it is a deus ex machina in the very real sense um and that's kind of an unfortunate kind of denouement but i i think john abbott does good work trying to invest something into the organians that it probably isn't really there on the page yes uh, I just want to talk about John Abbott really quick. A guy with a fascinating history. Um, not a lot of significant screen credits. A lot of screen credits, but not anything significant. I would say the Star Trek episode is probably the most significant credit he has that stood the test of time, unless you're a big Munsters or Lost in Space fan. But um, yeah, a TV day player or minor roles in a bunch of not-remembered movies. But he's a known Shakespearean actor. In fact, he acted across, uh, let's see if you recognize any of these names, Lawrence Olivier, Vivian Lee, and Alec Guinness in a production of Hamlet. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, it sounds like he was a very respected stage actor, which I think is the exact kind of energy you want to be popping into these Star Trek episodes, is that sense of, I don't know, the, something about stage and how you have to project and be over the top and be a little more theatrical, obviously, in theater, uh, translates well, I think, to this sort of genre television, like Star Trek, which is going for very theatrical mood. And so he fits it so well. Like, like you said, he's very much elevating the material he's given. And even if that ending is kind of a wet fart, he really, up until that point, he really gives a lot to a character whose job it is to tell people, I don't want to do anything. 
if the Arganians had been almost, I think if the Arganians had been in almost any other episode, I don't think anyone would remember them. That's the other thing. They're very inconsequential. They're remembered now because of this episode, because of the alleged Arganian priest treaty, which will never have any bearing on anything whatsoever going forward, <laughs> um, because it's a massive killer of drama. Um, but yeah, they, they, they exist. They are another, you know, godlike being that we've encountered because we just keep encountering them. And, you know, we've had it in Charlie X and we've had it in, oh, I don't know, it's just so many uh, where no man has gone before. And it, it, it just, it's, it's become, even at this point, again, about a third of the way through the original series, it's already become a trope. And it, and it's one that the series is already leaning on too hard. There's nothing really interesting about them other than, you know, well, we've evolved about, and like Spock's line about, you know, they're above us, as, as far above us as we are uh, above an amoeba, um, which is, but they don't really do anything to demonstrate that beyond the fact that they can turn somebody's spaceship off. Um, and it's there's no there's no real sense of them existing as anything other than, a plot device. So when we praise um, like John Abbott's performance, we, we praise it also, I think, in the knowledge that he's got nowhere to go. Like there's no right. great sense of any kind of society or race or culture or language or music or anything else that might go towards defining a civilization. They exist on this planet. Spock has an offhanded line about how um, the things like the castle and the the, the, the the corridors and whatever probably just exist to give other people external references to which they can relate. And that's it. They, they, they don't exist as a species at all. They exist as a way for this story to come to an end. And that is also quite undermining for the episode. It wouldn't have taken much to add maybe half a dozen sentences to give us some idea of like the greater scope of who they are what they are why they exist why if they are beings of pure energy why they bother interfering with amoebas at all i mean if there's that far above us why are they why are they bothering to involve themselves in this there's no particular reason to and they go out of their way to point out that the presence of the humans and the klingons on this planet is actually offensive to them so just don't bother then. It's like another. It's it's another one of those things that it it wouldn't have taken an awful lot just to add a little bit of detail, a little bit of extra in there to make them feel fully formed. But it's not there, and it's it's to the episodes. It's to the episodes loss. I also want to talk about the ending to this episode. We've touched on it briefly before, but I'm speaking about the Organians. It really. This twist with them really kind of betrays, I think, what it's been building to this whole time. Like, this entire episode, if we are to believe Kirk and Spock are kind of the moral centers for most of it, which there is no indication that they're not, I found it a very interesting episode about how, as discussed earlier, direct action is more effective than passive pacifism. If you just lay down and show your belly, you'll get run over by... Um, people from the outside and you have to sort of resist in order to actually affect change and like even if that politically is not where i align that is still interesting that is a point of view that it is taking and then the end the organians sort of take the center seat of like actually we were the ones in the crick all along you just need to lay down your weapons and make peace and 
it's both a more vague stance and just a sort of a deflating stance than what the episode seems to be building towards. Like, it had this very clear point of view about direct action that it then renegades on and is replaced by just some kind of nonsense. Like, that, that wouldn't apply in the real world. You, the United States and the Soviet Union would not just suddenly snap their fingers and get rid of the nuclear weapons because there is no God force making them do that. There is no, uh, to invoke another Cold War text, there is no Dr. Manhattan making them do that. Or I guess in that I guess in that case it was Ozymandias. Sorry for spoilers for Watchmen, but yes, it, there's no outside force stopping the Cold War, so it makes it kind of a useless message. I feel I don't know. It's a very complicated feeling, but it definitely feels like the episode is very defanged at the end for something that was very specific to something that is much more vague and useless. Well, I think that this is where, um, and I feel like I've busted this comparison out many a time because it is, it's, it's the old Tolkien line about things being applicable more than being allegorical, basically. Uh, and I do think that, yeah, the, the Organians, especially at the end, it is, I mean, I think that's close to a textbook deus ex machina ending and that they are fun- functionally gods. I think Kirk even describes them as such, um, or Spock does, but the... I think that, yeah, the the that part of it, I think it just collapses. I don't, I don't think that it works as a way to resolve it, or at least, I mean, I think that it, what it is is it's this sort of weird two step from what I think the original uh, idea was into this other idea of oh, we think we're the most evolved, but there are actually those who are way more evolved than us, and we are the children, not the adults. Um, and and I think that like that that's interesting, but I don't really feel like that's necessarily what Errand of Mercy is setting up. I, I, I suspect there are other original series episodes that explore that idea more effectively. I think that what we're dealing with here is, is much more about the idea of the Federation is not, or Starfleet or, or whatever they kind of technically are in this early incarnation, are not meaningfully less belligerent than the than the Klingons from the perspective of the Organians, um, and and in this and by that I mean from the perspective of what they believe the Organians to be the very amusing comparisons of Armenia or Belgium, um, but um, like and I and I think that like that to my mind is that is the potent part of the episode from a political perspective, and boy did I pop a lot of peas just then, uh, and I think that. Like that is, that's what's interesting. Um, this and that's a notion that will be picked up many more times. That like the Federation, while it certainly thinks of itself as altruistic, while it does not, um, you know, while it, it it doesn't think of itself in the context of uh, you know the the expansionist Klingons, they are absolutely expansionist, and they are absolutely uh, looking to, you know they are looking to conquer is not the right word perhaps, but they are, they are looking to absorb. They are looking to uh, bring into this world order, you know, that they, they are well to, to, I mean, we've been talking about the Vietnam parallels to bring up to a more modern parallel. They're a lot like NATO. They're a lot like uh, the European union. They're a lot like, like those sorts of supranational entities that, one can have issues with from the right, from the left, possibly also from the center. Uh, and like, I think that they, 
again, whatever their sort of, you know, you, you can believe that they, they believe in their sort of stated missions, or you can view them as essentially, well, to, to borrow a line from DS9, like a, like a, I believe it was a benign Borg, like I think was how they were once described. Um, and I think that like, that's, that to my mind is the part that's really interesting and the part that feels very relevant today um, in, in the context of current geopolitical uh, crises as well. Um, and I think what's probably true is that there's just no, there's no easy way to resolve that in one, in, in a single episode. I think that's the kind of thing that's better explored at length. I, I think that DS9 is able to explore that much more with uh, Bajor because it doesn't have, they don't have to be um, secretly more powerful than the Federation, though they have their own gods who are real, who can sort of fulfill, they sort of split the Organians into, like the Organians as they appear for most of the episode into the Bajorans and the Organians as they are at the end are the prophets essentially, which I think makes it work better and, and lets you explore it a little bit more effectively. But yeah, I, I, I think that like that's the part of the episode that is interesting. And then they just, they can't really come up with a good resolution. And so they just sort of throw at the wall. Well, they were... They were gods in their way, and and that's just sort of how we end the episode with 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 Kirk musing, and that's it's not the worst ending, but it definitely feels like we've 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 lost the thread of what was actually powerful about this up to this point. Daddy fixed it is never a satisfying end to an yeah. episode, I don't think. Um, no. Well, just to pick up on one thing that you said there, um, Alistair, is I think in terms of the politics of it as well. I love the line, and it's it's incredibly offhanded and never um, emphasized at all um, during the episode. But I love the line that Spock has about the fact that other than its strategic use, the planet is worthless. It's got nothing at all other than its its strategic value. There doesn't seem to be any minerals. There doesn't seem to be any dilithium or blah 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 whatever it, it has no intrinsic value other than strategic value which has been imposed upon it by these two kind of warring empires i think that's a really sly piece of criticism again it, it, it kind of helps to draw that vietnam comparison where you know the two sides were fighting a cold war hot but not over traditional things like resourcing but rather over this kind of political ideology and 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 you know uh, small east asian country getting caught in the middle of it i think that's a really good piece of writing very sly very intelligent and really helps to get to the the heart of what the episode is about so to see it deflate in this kind of almost sort of pathetic way at the end going oh yeah well we fixed it it, it just it really kind of draws the sting and it's such a shame because I don't want, I never like rewriting what other people are, you know, have done, and I'm not going to do it here. But there are just so many more satisfying ways of ending this than a wizard did it. And that's basically what this boils down to. And that just can't resolve an episode which is so functionally political in, in a yeah. satisfying and, manner. I mean, you're talking about the very ending, Alistair, about Kirk musing, oh, and I guess there were gods in the bridge. I've talked before on this podcast how so I really like those bridge denouement scenes, and this is maybe the weakest one we've had so far because there's nothing to say. And I think that just sums up the ending in general. There is, a, we have a great political conflict going with uh, Shatner and Kolokos going at it and trading blows, and then, oh, we are hit the 50 minute mark. Uh, people are about to switch to uh, whatever is on after Star Trek, and so hit the brakes wrap up the episode we're done 
And it's just, it's a problem that they run into. I think multiple times we've discussed where if they just, I don't know, people in the sixties, like, I don't want to say no one knew how to pace TV. That's obviously not true, but maybe it was more of an issue having my limited experience of older television, knowing how to pace an episode of television. So it would not have to hit an abrupt ending like this. Right.
yeah, I think that is a perfect way to sum it up. I don't think I have any further thoughts. Oh, I do have one further thought. I'm sorry. I almost forgot the day but I just wanted to say, uh, great Spock episode. I don't think we talked about Spock yet. I like him and Kirk. Uh, not quite devil in the dark level of them full-on flirting with each other, but definitely uh, they have each other's back throughout this episode. They have good banter. Um, I, Yeah, I, I think because we're at the tail end of this record, the specifics are starting to lose me and we don't have to get too deep into it anyways. But yeah, I, I think they have such a good rapport this episode. So worth shouting out. I just want to shout out Spock's outfit, which is great. His Organian outfit, the clothes that he gets into with like the little half cape and everything. Perfect. Oh, Leonard Nimoy can wear that so well. It just suits him down to the ground. And it's weird how natural and easy Spock seems to find wearing that outfit. Kirk always looks, even though the kind of yellow tunic they give him with the sort of rope belt that he half strangles a Klingon with at some point. Like, it's not that different from his uniform. It doesn't quite look right on him. Spock can wear that outfit. So just, I like, yeah, of course, Leonard Nimoy is great in this episode. Yes, it's not quite the same level of flirtation that we've seen between the two, but they're still definitely into each other. Um, but that outfit just, just nails it lovely. Mm. fully agree yeah absolutely and i think probably that suggests that we are moving towards our conclusion so it's time to give this episode some scores so um 
Alistair, you're our guest, so um, what do you like to give this one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Seven out of ten feels about right to me, too. I say my philosophy. I go with my gut. I write it down before we start recording. Sometimes I change it depending on the quality of the discussion, but this is a usual case where it's like, yeah, I feel it's either a strong seven, maybe a very weak eight, but then that ending just deflates it enough that, yeah, it's a solid seven for me. Uh, now, you see, I'm on a knife edge here because I really want to say six and a half. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that the last episode we did, Kev, you pointed out I'd given a half grade to almost, I think, like the last 10 episodes or something. Yeah. So, oh, I don't know. Mm. Well, you know, Kev is very anti-half points, and I'm very pro-half points. And seven feels slightly too generous, and six feels slightly not generous enough. But six and a half, I don't want to give it a half point this week. I'll bugger it. I'll give her a seven as well. Fine. It's a seven. Colicos is that good. I think that's just yeah, yeah. just well, well, for that. Yeah, exactly. Colicos has saved saved me from having to give a half point. His performance has boosted it by a whole zero point five percent. If it makes you feel better, your other six and a half recently are tomorrow's yesterday, Court Martial and Return of the Archons. And I mean I gave those sevens as well because I'm locked into the ten point scale for myself, but I think it's better than those three. So I think I would, I would agree. Uh, then, then I got it right. Thank goodness yeah. for that. Excellent. Right. Well, <laughs> before before I fall down even further statistical analysis of myself, um, let's quietly move on to recommendations. So, Alistair, what would you like to recommend? Yes.
I think if we stay on schedule, this episode will post the day after it, season two starts. So yeah, Stranger Will season two, which we will cover on this podcast like season one. We'll do a recap episode with covering all the season and a more broad view with a guest. And it might be a little later after the season ends because I'm committed to watching this with friends and that might delay watching on a week-by-week basis. And then, of course, you have to record it and edit it, etc. But yes, expect soon after the season two concludes in August or so, we will be talking about it. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, Kev, what would you like to give us this week? So recently I have been watching the original Planet of the Apes franchise uh, in concordance with the podcast I've shouted out before. On this podcast, Blank Check, they are covering them on their Patreon feed. And they're the four I've seen are such great movies. And I don't the fifth is not the best reputation, so I maybe I don't need to recommend that one. But uh, the original Planet of the Apes needs no introduction. Uh, oh my god, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape. That was a mix of Simpsons and actual quotes there. But we all know that movie. It is still a very good movie. If you haven't seen it, it's like... I mean, it's written by Rod Serling, so it has that feel of like a Twilight Zone episode with a full movie budget, uh, both in tone and practice. You have Charlton Heston doing some great Heston-y stuff. I, think I got that right, right? It's Heston, not some other similar idol from the day. Right. Charlton yes. Heston, the William Shatner of the cinema world. Absolutely. <laughs> um, hmm. <laughs> but. Oh, yeah. Yes, the original still holds up, but I had seen that before. What I hadn't seen are the second, third, and fourth movies. Uh, beneath is kind of what you would at first be afraid a Planet of the Apes sequel would be. It's a less, it's a cheaper actor than Heston wandering on the desert some more, encountering some more apes. Eventually gets to a very weird place and a very infamous ending, which I guess I won't spoil, but it's also a pretty famous ending. But you know, Yes. <laughs> yes. But that second one beneath, uh, soft recommendation, but probably necessary for your context to watch the third and fourth movies. I think the third movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, is really remarkable. The premise for this one is some of the recurring ape characters in the first two movies manage to travel back in time to the contemporary 70s. So yay, only two people in ape makeup, more or less, for the whole movie. But also they become like celebrities they attend cocktail parties and social events. There's like they get put on trial at first for the government not knowing what they are. And there's this like there's time travel paradoxes around whether or not to tell humans that, yeah, you'll be subservient to apes in the future. And yeah, we are from the future and talking apes that would might cause some problems if humans got worried about that uh, and saw them as a threat. So 
God, it's such a funny movie too. It's it's such a ridiculous movie. You can see these apes walking around in human clothes and delivering little bon mots to people. Well, also there's like a great little political and I mean Star Trek esque heady sci fi uh, thoughts going on. That one is wonderful. And then the fourth one, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, is also incredible. It involves the first ape who gains sentience, and he can talk. Um, it for reasons that tie into the third movie that I won't spoil. But basically, this ape, it the new movies, the CGI movies that star Andy Circus as Caesar the ape, uh, draw heavily from this fourth movie. And I think that was a, such a smart direction to go in because I think you can see the limitations in like makeup and budget and time scale. It's basically compressing an epic story into 90 minutes and an epic story that those first th- those three newer movies get to draw out and get into more detail. But on the whole, it becomes this like really wild experiment. It's set like near future. So like in the seventies, it's set in the nineties and it looks very prisoner esque, a uh, very art deco future style. Uh, the society where humans have apes as sort of second class citizens uh, is just such a fun idea and then it gets into kind of like race relations and like subjugation of lower classes like class issues and the apes start a revolution kind of a good time with errand of mercy it's about direct action and how these apes need to stand up for themselves against human oppressors it's telling a lot of story very big ideas with like a very small budget and very close quarters and yeah, it's it's really good sci-fi storytelling, both that third and fourth movie. It, a lot of interesting ideas at play that you wouldn't normally suspect. And because they were plotted out that way, where it's like this, the third, fourth, and fifth movies, as I understand, were all plotted out as once a modern sort of franchise idea. You really have a seamless continuity there as these sort of sequels slash prequels showing how we got there, but how it's all one big loop. Hard to explain without getting into like another hour of more details but uh god seeing those apes rise up against the humans that's not a spoiler because that's obvious what's going to happen in the fourth movie that is just so satisfying and you really it hits that um and or one way out part of your brain that just makes you start going crazy it really does hit to such a good climax so yeah um less Planet of the Apes you've heard of, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Soft Pass, but Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes are my big recommendations. Those, I think, are like, if you haven't dove into that sort of very classic franchise, it is a classic franchise, not just one movie that happened to have four sequels. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I, I do have a bit of a soft spot for uh, for the Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, I, I kind of sort of low-key love them. Um, so that's brilliant. Yeah, they're great. Um, yeah, they are. It's it, it's so weird. Uh, they are so cheesy sometimes, but they're just they, there's so much thought behind them. They're really really well constructed pieces of cinema, even when the budget can't always stretch to the the um, the breadth of the ideas which are contained within the script. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely fantastic, lovely. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to recommend a TV show called Forever. Um, now there are two TV shows called Forever. One of them is from 2014. Uh, it's not that one. I'm going to recommend the one from 2018, uh, which stars Fred Armisen. Uh, it was created by Matt Hubbard, and I certainly in the UK, it's available on Amazon. I assume it's also available on Amazon in America. Um, and it's a 
gorgeous series. It is one season long, eight episodes, so it's not a big time sink. It is a, a beautiful story about what happens when two people die, um, which doesn't sound like it's going to be the most cheery thing in the world, but and yet it is kind of a comedy drama, more drama than comedy. Uh, it's vaguely and in, in kind of not really, but kind of sort of uh, reminiscent of The Good Place. Um, the Good Place is much more straightforwardly a comedy than Forever is. Forever is very melancholy, very thoughtful, very slowly paced, I suppose, but really deliberately paced. It's a beautiful piece of television. It, it, it's from, uh, let's like say, 2018. I'd never heard of it. It it just came on my radar because my other half referred me to it. And it's just it's an incredibly powerful exploration of relationships and what happens when uh, relationships reach a certain point. Um, I mentioned Fred Armiston as Oscar, who's a lead character. Uh, June, his wife, is played by Maya Rudolph. She's incredible. And it's just this really, I hate to use the word elegiac, but I don't know what other word to use. So I'm going to have to fall back on it. I know it's a cliche word to use, but it's this incredibly kind of elegiac series. It's weird and it's odd. It's got a lot to say about female relationships as well and female love. Uh, it's incredibly moving. It's got a profoundly ambiguous ending. I don't know whether it was designed as a one series show or whether it simply never got renewed, but either way, the ending and its ambiguity is perfect for the series. It couldn't really end on a better note. And nothing needs really to be explained further than it is within the context of the series. It's a gorgeous show. It's just very thoughtful. The episodes themselves are like half hour long. So it's not it's not a 45 minute or an hour long drama. It's just a lovely, beautiful piece of television. And so, yeah, that's my recommendation. Um, Forever, like I said, it's on... Amazon Prime in the UK, and I presume it probably is in in America as well. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I'm checking if it's available in America. Now. I should have been thinking while you were talking, but <laughs> yes, uh, that is some. I have reservations about Fred Armisen. It is all available on Prime in America. It is available on Prime in America. Reservations about Fred Armisen, but I love Maya Rudolph, and I do like those sort of existential TV shows. So I might check it out. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Fred Armisen fan either, but I, honestly, he's never been better. He's just, mm. he's the perfect choice for this show and, and for this character. But before I eulogize any further, I think it's probably time to move on to plugs. So, Alistair, what would you like to plug? Yeah. Say hi to Sarah for me. It's a crime that you're not podcasting at the moment, Alistair. We'll have to do something about that. We we need your wit and wisdom in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
said. It's good advice that neither of us could disagree with. I think it's yeah. Way to steal my plug, which is you can find Talking <laughs> Trek. <laughs> you can find Talking Trek to you whenever podcatcher you use. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us whenever podcatcher you are using to help other people find it. And you can find myself at Kev Kozer, K-V-K-O-E-S-E-R on Twitter. I also frequently guest on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Roland Kaiser, about action movies. JG's writings are at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. His other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, covering the Beatles track by track. I think we can probably wrap things up there for now. Next week, we have a factor, and it's alternative. So that probably means we have some kind of alternative factor and as always we hope you're going to join us for it but until then keep talking <laughs>